questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight we discuss the four-year journey and mission of an investigative reporter to find Hillary's blackberries and all of the mischief they create. The path of destruction leads through Libya, Syria, Sudan, Yemen, the Iran nuclear and weapons deals abroad straight back home to the attempted Trump, DNC email entrapments and successive coup after Trump becomes president. Get ready for Blackberries Matter. Hillary's Blackberries may be the heart of the matter. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. George Webb is network analyst turned investigative journalist. The crimes of the DNC and Hillary Clinton in the 2016 presidential election spurred Webb to start a research channel based on the work of Peter Schweitzer, Clinton Cash. Webb states his YouTube channel of online researchers turned into a small army of investigators digging for the truth in 2017. A February phone call with the legendary journalist Cy Hirsch encourages Webb to quote-unquote go on the road and write a book. Four years and 4,000 videos later, chasing down every lead on the Hillary Clinton and DNC emails, Webb's YouTube channel was destroyed by YouTube. And after three years, George Webb is back on Veritas to share his truth. Hello, George, and welcome back. How are you? Uh, Mel, it's great to talk to you again. It's been a long time, but uh, and so much has happened. Uh, but uh, the story keeps getting uh, crazier, and and every twist and turn, you know, we live it every day. And this censorship, I, it's almost every single interview I do, do for the past few months, George. Every single guest has been telling me the same thing. They have censored. You lost your channel completely, didn't you? Yeah. Um, and I got a one minute notice. It was pretty funny. Uh, and, uh, Stefan Molyneux is the other one who lost his channel the yes. same day. And I was, uh, arranging through, uh, Paul Cottrell, who's another YouTuber, uh, to have a show with, with <laughs> Stefan and, and Paul survived the cut. So, uh, I guess that the only took people over a hundred thousand in the first whack, but, uh, yeah. And Stefan is equally, um, uh, you know, Stefan had like a million subscribers. I only had 105,000, but it's still, it was like one minute warning because, and you lose all the comments, you lose all the richness of the, the comments and the contextual information. That's great metadata. 
to help find uh, uh, things very pinpoint and on on topics on a wide variety of topics, all gone, all lost. Plus, your your ability to connect with your audience is all cut off. You, YouTube keeps everything, so it really was kind of like a a, a, a Brutus moment with the uh, at two Brutus a stab in the back from YouTube. What about the? Have you been following today the? All these CEOs, Facebook, Twitter, Apple, and so on, uh, going to Congress. What, what do you think about this? Do you think that maybe something will happen, or will the president have to sign an executive order to put some action? Well, the, I only saw a blurb of, I think it was Matt Gates talking to the Google CEO, and just by a twist of fate, um, I actually worked for Eric Schmidt, who was the CEO before uh, the current um Uh, Indian guy, um, but he was at Sun Microsystems back then, and um, you know, pretty good guy uh, in all. But he definitely, as he progressed in his career and moved up the ladder, you could see where he was getting more closer and closer to the CIA, closer and closer to the CIA. Um, and this Alphabet, when they started the Alphabet, that was almost completely a uh, you know DoD uh, project and it's it's tough uh, when you have all this information that nobody's really willing to pay a whole lot of money for I mean there's a lot of ad targeting that they do but if you then get a 10 billion dollar offer from DoD to do psychographic profiling on all the people and you know this demographic or that demographic it's hard to turn that money down and and that's when Google kind of took that turn down, at least in my mind, it could have been they had a lot of covert projects before that. But that's when Google said, oh, hey, we can remarket all this stuff for this for the spy systems. And um, uh, the Maven program uh, that came up in the hearings, I believe, uh, and I've talked a lot for four years about the Mavni program, um, which is military assets vitally needed in case of insurrection. And so it was interesting that that came up, the Maven, M-A-V-I-N, is just the flip side, the information side of the same program. It's interesting that came up today. So I um, I always look for light rather than the heat. Uh, so I did see some good things come out uh, today, uh, specific proposals, um, rather than just you know the typical dramatics that you get with these uh, these interviews, uh, Capitol Hill type testimonies. I consider Silicon Valley the epitome of capitalism, intellectual property, ingenuity, but they're turning into a communist-based tech tyranny. It's completely opposite to what capitalism stands. Well, you know, I heard what Matt Gates had to say, and it was pretty shocking. I, I had done stories about the J-20 and how that looked like uh, the, uh, I believe it was the F-22. It's been a long time since I did the story. But if you put the two next to each other, they look identical. Only the only thing is, uh, the F-35, excuse me, uh, they, they they made it a better design. Uh, it wasn't as, as fat. It looks like a tur the F-35 is more like a turkey, but the, there's a sleeker design for the J-20. But when And the J-31 also, I think I did a, a show on. But the thing that really troubled me was this AI center that Matt Gates had picked on. And he had said that this was used in targeting, target recognition. You know, you can do pattern recognition. You know, they make you fill out that little CAPTCHA thing, which one's, what's a street sign, what's a tricycle, that sort of thing. Well, it's the same problem from the air uh, when you're doing targeting. And if that's true... If that really is true, and, and General Dunford said it was treasonous, 
uh, that's, you know, at that time was the Joint Chief of Staff. That's a pretty serious allegation that, that a, a Silicon Valley company that, boy, uh, fed off the uh, DOD money uh, with uh, Intel Q and all the other the, the, the hog slop trough that that is right where I'm sitting here on the Potomac near Washington, D.C. If they took all that money and, and, and slopped it to trough and now are turning around and, and perfecting a weapon system for our enemies, that's incredible, really. And as I always say lately, I hate to get political, but it seems to me that Silicon Valley, the media, is all in one political party. Why isn't this more obvious to people? We are not here to win. We are here to be controlled if they win. Well, I, I think you definitely have, uh, getting into the book and um, Black Lives Matter, or excuse me, Black Berries Matter, I, I deliberately used uh, the same sort of cadence of the, of the current rallying cry on the left. Uh, there was just more, uh, you know, wheeling and dealing, uh, you know, in backroom They call it pay-to-play. You pay me, and I will fund your weapons program. I'll fund your DARPA program. Um, and it just so happens that the people who were doing the uh, fellowships, you know, from all these different news agencies all over the world, not just here in, the, in Washington, but all over the world, was the same group, the same, uh, you know, uh, Soros kind of backed groups. So if you end up, it's like if you come up through that farm system, The whole time, you're going to write stories that your people that are your trainers and coaches, you know, train you to do. And I've, I've just gone to so many of these events. I'm, I'm the lone duck here, or, or usually me and Consortium News, Joe Deloria. <laughs> We're the only two conservatives at these, you know, Washington press meetings. And they're all convinced it's not, it's, it's not like they're a part of the conspiracy. They, they really do believe that they're, you know, Trump. Uh, works for Russia, and, they, and Trump caught the DNC emails uh, for through WikiLeaks, and he conspired with Julian Assange. I mean, this is something that uh, any rational person would say, hey, we need to get you on some kind of medication, and we need to get you out to uh, three or four days to a farm and, you know, do some manual labor and, and get you out of whatever information source. But I'm not kidding. I've sat in in meetings, not recently where people say this, you know, Trump, well, Trump's working for Russia. Like, are you kidding me? Uh, no matter four years of no evidence, no matter four years of embarrassment of, you know, paper thin, uh, evidence, uh, vices that were written on the back of, you know, uh, cardboard boxes, no evidence. They still believe that. Is the Russia angle simply a, uh, one of the variables of the Hegelian dialectic? They need to blame it on someone so they can bring their own agenda to solve, quote-unquote, the problem, which means a coup d'etat. Yeah, problem, uh, uh, crisis, solution. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, the Hegelian dialectic. Um, yeah, I think maybe uh, the, when you use Russians and Ukrainians and every other intelligence agency in the world, Uh, to do backroom deals all over the world and then kick back the uh, kickbacks through the DNC, which is what my book's about, pay to play. Uh, sure, yeah. Uh, everything looks like, uh, you know, if, if that's how the system works, um, yeah, let's go ahead and blame the opposition for working with the Russians. Nobody dealt more and did more joint ventures with the Russians than Hillary Clinton. Skolkova was a, a huge intellectual capital drain, including Google, Facebook, um, and um, 
uh, I can't remember who the other uh, one that was in the Skolkova uh, consortium, but a huge intellectual capital drain. That's something else that Gates said today was that these students are being used as intermediaries for uh, the capital drain in a sponsored way by Google. Uh, and just amazing uh, uh, revelations uh, from the Capitol Hill uh, today. I have to ask you this right at the beginning. I know many of our listeners are thinking of this as well. Will Joe Biden be withdrawn as a candidate? And even though the talk is about selecting a woman of color to be his running mate, what are the chances that Hillary Clinton may resurface and might be the one? And I know others are speculating that Michelle Obama, and most recently Kamala Harris, but Hillary seems to be the piece of, I'm going to say the word, that you can never flush properly. <laughs> well, I totally agree with you. I think the woman of color, though, is Susan Rice. And Susan Rice goes back. I mean, she lived for years and years with Madeleine Albright. Madeleine Albright always was the uh, sort of, pro, um, uh, you know, a person tutelaging or giving uh, tutoring lessons to Hillary Clinton as the shadow, shadow secretary of state when Warren Christopher was Secretary of State in the first Clinton administration, but then uh, Madeleine Albright became Secretary of State in the second, and then Hillary basically was was her shadow. Uh, and, and from then on, Hillary had designs, you know, Secretary of State and then, then President. So there's no doubt in my mind that their uh, person uh, that they, you know, uh, groomed uh, all along the way to take this to take this role in history, which is Susan Rice, um, is going to be used right now. Susan Rice, I believe, will be a VP at the convention. I think, um, I don't know when they'll move Biden out, but definitely cognitively they've done the whole Reagan thing to him. They've sprayed him or something. But his cognitive abilities have just dramatically dropped in the last year to where he really can't form a sentence anymore. So at some point, you, you push him out. If I, I think if he's going well in the polls, you let him win. If he's not going in the polls, you yank him, and and then uh, and then uh, Susan Rice makes Hillary uh, vice president, and then she becomes president. You know, basically, uh, Hillary will be in her mind do everything she can to become president. She is not sitting this one out. I totally agree with you on that one. I remember I was thirteen. I've always heard about Kennedy being murdered, but I've never lived it. But in, on March 30th, 1981, I was told by a neighbor, hey, they tried to kill the president, Reagan. And I uh, ran and I looked at the news. And years later, I found out a lot of interesting things. And you probably know this, too, that Hinckley, his father, was one of the biggest donors and friends of George Herbert Walker Bush. And you know the whole story that appeared in the Houston Chronicle, that it appeared that uh, Neil or Marvin was having dinner with one of Hinckley's brothers the night before. Bottom line, just like with Hillary now, let's say that she became vice president with Joe. Do you think another incident, just like what happened with Reagan, might ensue? I think Susan Rice is too smart to wait for that. <laughs> I think Susan Rice would immediately... Uh, you know, I think... Maybe too, like Dick Cheney, you know, was the hand on the White House, even though that you know Bush was running to the different events and so forth. The real power of the White House was was Cheney. 
I think that's how it would be with Hillary uh, for maybe a year or two, because she, she would be the first uh, black woman president. Uh, Susan Rice would be the first black woman president. So get that out of the way and now bring Hillary in uh, as you know the first woman president. It's, it's some combination thereof. I know it's going to be Hillary. I know it's going to be Susan Rice. Um, and as far as I, I do remember the Reagan uh, assassination as well, and that was, gosh, I think two months into it. That's right. <laughs> you, know, you know, it wasn't very much into it. It's presidency where they, uh, at the Hilton there. And, um, as a matter of fact, here in Washington, there's St. Elizabeth's, uh, is now a DHS facility, but it was a, uh, kind of the funny farm uh, back then. And he had very, uh, Hinckley had very limited, he could kind of come and go as sort of like the Jeff Epstein plan where he had to be in at night. Uh, but he basically had free reign. Uh, so he was not uh, locked down like people think he was. And then he was let, let go. He's free right now. Interesting. See, I didn't know that. Obviously, yeah. the family was involved. And now, is it true that Reagan did not want Bush to be his running mate, but he was coerced and he had to take him? And that this is why we saw what happened, because Bush could not win the vote. And what a great way to be a shoo-in. Yeah, I think, uh, I think James Baker is the guy who's been given credit for being the one who moved Bush into the VP ticket. Uh, I know that there was a, definitely a wide water there uh, about Bush being a very moderate and Reagan being you know, more conservative. I don't actually know the story of who brokered that deal. Uh, I, I'm interested to, to hear that story now. Uh, but I, if, it, if I had to guess, I'd say James Baker, because he was sort of the man in Havana for all these things. Wasn't he the one saying, I am president while the president is in the hospital? Didn't the movie display that? was that? Al Haig. That Alexander was Al Haig. Haig. That's right. That's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. There's another guy, a continuity of government guy down in the basement with Ollie North uh, planning how they're going to take over the world when uh, you know a virus hits or, or something hits. These guys think about this all the time. They think about taking over the government and what's the succession. Of course, Al Haig got it all wrong. He wasn't, uh, you know, he didn't have a constitution handy. That the secretary of state was not the person who would take over in that case. Or I, I can't remember. I think he was either secretary of defense or secretary of state. But anyway, he wasn't in the line of succession. And he was talking on the phone to uh, uh, Vice President Bush. So if you if the person's alive and on uh, Marine 2, on, on the helicopter, you can talk to him. You don't take over. Um, so it is interesting. But I do think Bush was made acting president for about eight hours, about eight to ten hours that day. Now, your new book, Blackberries Matter. Yep. Tell me more, because a lot of people are not familiar with this whole Blackberries issue. And many people don't know that it actually could be used to circumvent even our own intelligence apparatus. Yeah, that's very true. Um, so if you go back to those guys that I talked about with Iran Contra, with Ollie North there and, and uh, you know, Bud McFarland, you know all the names, the, the famous names from that, Kofor Black, etc. cetera. Uh, they used a device called the KL, I, I believe it was the KL-43. Remember Fawn Hall, supposedly, tried to throw a sex angle in there. Right. And, they, you know, here's Ollie North in the basement of the – well, the problem with the KL-43, everyone liked it because it had the keyboard. And, you know, you have to type these messages sometimes and that are rather long in these cables. Uh, but it was clunky, and, and especially if you're going into any kind of other country, immediately they see that's not a standard laptop – 
uh, and they immediately say, this guy's a spy. So they were looking, uh, this goes back to NQTEL uh, and um, developing the BlackBerry. Let's have something that looks like a cell phone, but also has a full keyboard. And, and NQTEL's first project with Research in Motion in, in Waterloo, Canada was the BlackBerry. So people don't realize the BlackBerry was CIA from the very first day, uh, and it was made to be an encryption device, and it was sold as a commercial device afterward, which is why NATO today still is standardized in the BlackBerry. Uh, the operating system, even if you don't want the BlackBerry hardware anymore with the full keyboard, you still can get the Research in Motion uh, BlackBerry Enterprise server, the software, to use with your Androids and, and uh uh, apples. So don't think of it in terms of necessarily just hardware. The key idea here was that you could build in encryption, and the from day one it was had encryption. Where that those tools didn't come until ten years later with the cell phones, and you know the chips, the encryption chips. Uh, so 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 think of the the BlackBerry as a CIA device from day one. It was used a lot in terms of dealing with overseas partners for covert actions for that reason. So if you had, um, if you wanted to run um, an action uh, under the nose, let's say uh, Ron Contra to, to take Reagan, since you brought up Reagan, you would run it with, at that time, the KL-43s. But if you had, let's say, Kosovo or Bosnia in the 90s, you would, you would run it, well, go a little bit further, let's say Iraq, you would run it on the BlackBerry. You could get the whole war started. You could get a whole army of people trained up. You could get everybody, you know, assembled at the border before then you let the president in on it. Now, it just so happens that Cheney and Bush were completely in on it together, so you didn't need that kind of security. But what I'm saying is the BlackBerry affords you the ability to have a private enclave secure just with your conspirators. So so let's say uh, like a Kennedy, not knowing about the Bay of Pigs until the 11th hour, right? You could have a whole bunch of conspirators go pretty far down the road, you know, almost to the 10-yard line of the opponents. And then you let the president know at the 11th hour, the BlackBerry allows that, allows the shadow government, allows a deep state to exist. And this is exactly why it's important today with Trump. All the Trump coups, all the uh, if if COVID is a bioweapon, it turns out to be a weak bioweapon or a strong bioweapon. That's why it's important. All the uh, Trump uh, spying in the in the campaign, the Trump takedowns, the Twenty Fifth Amendment conspiracies, all those things probably go back to these Blackberries as the encryption algorithm, and um, that's why Blackberries matter. Uh, it's not because. You know, Hillary, we all know Hillary used the BlackBerry and got the message that Gaddafi was dead on her BlackBerry. And then she, you know, uh, the ABC interview and she went into a fit of delight. We you know, came, we, all, we saw he died. Ha ha ha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we all saw that. We all saw that this is the, the right thing. So so in the book, you're not you're not focusing on something that's the wrong answer. But but what I do is I go into the background of how this has, you know, been used for since the day it was conceived to run these covert actions. And it's the perfect thing to run. Let's say if Obama had, for instance, also a BlackBerry, but it was a very watered down BlackBerry. He could only talk to 10 people. He could only, he was dealing kind of through uh, the group and there in the White House through kind of a keyhole 
whereas Hillary had this full access, Huma Abedin, Zalagberry had the full access, Doug Band, who was the, the close advisor of, of Bill Clinton, had the full access. You had uh, people who were in a company that was kind of a quasi-State Department, quasi-covert um, a uh, weapons company called Taneo that Jeff Epstein's a part of. He's flying these guys all around for covert actions. So so it, it all kind of comes together in Huma Abedin and her Blackberries and the person who configures her Blackberries for for these covert actions, Libya, Syria, Sudan, Yemen, the Iran nuclear deal, etc. So you think the same people who were responsible for this coup are the same people who took down Gaddafi, and they're trying to do the same thing in Syria, do it in Sudan, Yemen, etc. Absolutely. There's no question in my mind. And look, they're all the same people. Who's, who's, who's the one who said it was a film that uh, ended up uh, ca causing the NATO bombings, right? The Benghazi film. It was Susan Rice. She right. was the one who went to all the talk shows that day and said it was a film, right? Who's going to be the vice president for Joe Biden, the woman of color? Susan Rice. Who's saying that Trump didn't handle the COVID-19 well and she would have done a better job? For no reason. She doesn't have to come out of the woodwork right now other than to put her basically uh, a, a, placer, uh, a placeholder, her, her hat in the ring, saying, hey, I'm weighing in now on Trump and COVID. This is a, a referendum. It's the same people. And if you go down the list, and again, I'm talking to witnesses who are part of the campaign Right. Known Joan Biden for 40 years. They're the ones giving me this information. It's not something I've, uh, you know, come up with on my own and through construction or, or just, you know, logical distillation. It's actually something I was told. So that's that's the key here. How convenient is this COVID-19 lockdown for somebody like Joe Biden? If you don't have to face Trump in a stadium or, you know, in a face-to-face -face debate, and you postpone as much as you possibly can, that is only beneficial to him, isn't it? Well, I, I, I think, you know, the, the state he is in, uh, it's the only way he could possibly finish a debate. And, you know, the way feeds work, uh, you could have a feed coming in to the control room, and the feed going out, you can add, delete, uh, have a little sound blip, If he says something really stupid, uh, you could have a you could introduce a, a five or six second delay. Uh, you can, you know, do all sorts of things to disrupt Trump. Uh, you can feed the questions. We've seen this before. You can feed the prearranged questions. You can have the video cut over to a pre-recorded. I mean, there's it's a million different ways that you can, uh, uh, you know, doctor a supposedly live event and give the impression that's a live event. When in fact it's it's mostly staged, um, especially with the questions. Um, you know, if you we've seen that before. You know, we've had the whole thing with Donna Shalala, not Donna Shalala, but Donna Brazil giving questions in advance. Yeah. You have you have a staffer write it out. You practice it 20 times. When they finally ask the question, you just hit the button, and there you go. <laughs> What about you mentioned Donna Brazil, and I'm remembering of the name Seth Rich. Did you ever look into what happened to him and why? Well, in the book, I tell this story where I, I find the Blackberries first. I find the person who's configuring the Blackberries for Huma and Hillary and, and so forth through going to all these different places, all these different cities, knocking on all these doors, and then looking for this administrator. Who, who, so I find, the, I find the Blackberries, 
And then and only then does somebody from the Biden camp kind of come out of the woodwork. And I'd publicize this. I'm publishing these things on videos every day. Okay, so there's a lot of people that are hearing about it. So this for what he told me was it was a 36 year all the time Joe Biden was in the Senate. This key aide, okay, was going to tell me what the Blackberries were for. He's going to tell me all about how this key network person came to Capitol Hill from Pakistan, wasn't a U.S. citizen, how he became uh, so close to Debbie Wasserman Schultz, how he went up through the ranks, what the Blackberries started to be used for, what the Blackberries then moved into. So I have this witness here. Now, he looks exactly like Ambassador Mark Taylor, but he would not give me his name. Could be a younger brother, could be a nephew. You know, sometimes people get their nephew's jobs in Capitol Hill. But the key was he had worked for Senator Bill Bradley. He had worked for Joe Biden for 36 years. And he was still working for Joe Biden when Joe Biden was vice president. So he was very recently um, still working in the Senate. He worked in the Senate, this guy. I call him Deep Blackberry at the time. But let's just call him Mr. Biden Blackberry. He's the one who's telling me about Donna Brazil. And he's telling me about Seth Rich. And it's completely different than anything that you think. Uh, it's it's uh, Seth Rich uh, and Donna Brazil, uh, you know, they were supposedly fighting or whatever. No, they were the peacemakers inside uh, the DNC. And there was this fight going on between the Hillary people who really wanted to push the uh, limits on foreign policy in terms of, of expeditionary covert actions, you know, taking stuff, knocking over toppling countries. And Biden, who had used the Blackberries more for diplomatic negotiations, negotiating joint ventures for oil and gas deals, so a little bit of DOD, you know, if there was a poison gas plant over here or biological weapons plant over there. But it was mostly that Richard Luger kind of uh, – it was a buddy of his in the Senate Armed Services Committee, and they were doing these deals. They weren't doing topples. They weren't doing bank jobs. They were doing deals uh, with foreign countries. So after 9-11 – this is the story the guy tells, and I'm going to get to Seth Rich in a second. But after 9-11, Joe Biden was saying the Senate Armed Services Committee, this guy, Biden, this Biden Blackberry guy, is saying they're being used for these deals. And Hillary comes into the Senate Armed Services Committee. And then she wants to go full tilt. She wants to go, no, I got this friend named David Petraeus. He's this general. He's got these seven plans to knock over these seven countries. Forget this, you know, trying to go into business with people and joint ventures. We're, uh, we're going to knock them over, right? And so, so what the Biden Blackberry guy tells me is that Donna Brazil – and Seth Rich, working for Donna Brazil, were playing kind of this go-between role between the Biden people, who are more the negotiators and joint venture people, and the Hillary people, which is more the, no, we're going to just knock them over. You know, we have the power in the United States. And when Hillary does become Secretary of State, it happens. Okay, that's what Biden, the Biden Blackberry guy is telling me. Now, I'm trying to figure. And, oh, by the way, he – I. I check his bona fides right at the start of the meeting. The first thing I'm interested in is how did this Pakistani guy come to, you know, Capitol Hill and start working for all these top people in the DNC. And he's making $160,000 a year and he's working nine months a year in Pakistan and he's getting motorcade rides, you know, Trumpian 
motorcade treatment when he goes back to Pakistan. What the heck is going on here? And this guy named Imran Awan, right? And he tells me Imran Awan came in through this CIA program called Inter-America. And no one knew that at that point. I found the Blackberries. Okay, now, three weeks later, I'm talking to this Mr. Biden Blackberry. He's saying, this is the guy you're talking about came in the CIA program called Inter-American. Well, that was confirmed five months later, but no one had that knowledge at that point when I reported it four or five months later in a, in a sort of a, a Senate hearing with Luke Rosiak from The Daily Caller and Jim Jordan uh, and uh, a few other uh, senators, um, a few other House congressmen that that is how. Imran Awan came to Capitol Hill. Now, it could be he was just a Capitol staffer, and that's how he knew Imran came in, and he was puffing up his experience with Biden, puffing up his experience with Hillary. Uh, and we don't know the answer. I, don't, I still don't know the guy's name. I've been trying to find him. But we do have his BlackBerry. He left the BlackBerry with me after the meeting. About a four-hour meeting, he left me with the BlackBerry. So we do have the physical evidence that he did have an official Senate Sergeant Barnes BlackBerry. Did the Trump administration get its hands into one of these blackberries and could they quote unquote reverse engineer them to be able to decrypt them decryption is really super hard because what happens is you take two really really big prime numbers and it turns out that when you multiply two prime numbers times each other it makes another even bigger uh, prime number and it's almost hard it's almost impossible to crack that you can test all the combinations of numbers, you know, basically, and 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 defactor it. But you need a huge computer. You need a Dick Cheney-sized computer, a hammer-sized computer, which is over here on the Potomac at Fort Washington. You need a Dick Cheney-sized computer. If you may remember, uh, Dennis Montgomery had 23 hard drives with all these conversations of all these people that they were doing spying Dick Cheney. And, but they, it, it's called, you know, brute force and ignorance. You know, it's just a brute force method to try to get these things decrypted. The other way to do it, and I sold uh, this software, which is the PGP software, which is what they use. Uh, and I was a software engineer for the software, so I know a little bit about it, uh, is to have the keys. The, the whole idea is to make it hard for people on the outside, but easy for the people in the group, in the enclave, okay? Uh, so, even if you got the Blackberries, this is the whole idea. If they're ever intercepted by a foreign adversary, they're just devices and they're impossible to decrypt. But if you go to the server and you have the server password and you have the server keys, you that's the goal. You can decrypt anything very easily. So it would require – now, I'm not saying that it's impossible, but I'm saying if you can get a physical device like I had – that was still taking an, uh, the email, and you could go through the email really quickly and print out all the emails, that would have been uh, a, a possibility. But I think most of those Blackberries now are long gone. I also found hard drives with the Blackberries, with the government markings at this guy's house, this Imran Awad. So there's a possibility there that these hard drives may also have the communications on it, but we don't know if the hard drives are encrypted or not. But I know who did it, <laughs> or at least I have a very strong feeling of who has the codes and where the codes are. Um, 
And uh, that's just happens to be a guy who works for the Atlantic Council named Dmitry Alperovich, and I just happened to work with him uh, in the year 2000. And I know we bought the company, PGP, and I know Dmitry ported it. And so that's, you know, when you set these networks up, that's who would have the keys. So Dmitry Alperovich, he's the same person. Dmitry Alperovich is the same person who goes on to do the Russia hoax. He's the person at CrowdStrike that covers up the real leak of the DNC emails, creates the hoax with Gustav II hoax, who was a guy who works for Joe Biden, a guy named Warren Flood. So he's very closely connected to this. He would be very interesting to put in front of a congressional hearing committee. So what I'm saying is there's a couple of different ways that you can get at this. We could find who Biden, Mr. Biden Blackberry is, if that's actually Mark Taylor or a relative of his. We can get Imran Awan, who configured the Blackberries. We can get people who got the Blackberries configured for them, Yuma Abedin, et cetera, the 22 or 23 people that had the Blackberries in, uh, in the State Department. There's 45 different people in the, in the Congress that had the, the, the Awan Blackberries. We could go that route and put them on the stand. Uh, so there's a lot of different human routes, um, and there's a couple of different technical routes that we could go to get the information. Will we ever be able to not deconstruct, because obviously it's so difficult, but obviously some laws have been broken. I'm not a legal scholar, but something tells me that laws have been broken. Is it because we have so many Obama, Gladio appointed judges? And I know that President Trump has replaced a lot of them, but is this one of the reasons nothing has happened and why we haven't seen arrests taking place yet? Well, I, I sued the DNC. A lot of people uh, remember that who watched my series. And um, we had, I had the same judge that Mike Flynn had, uh, Rudy Contreras, who was an Obama appointee. Uh, I also had uh, Judge Chutkan, who was Imran Awan's uh, judge. So my experience is in the D.C. district, and my experience is with those two judges that were both Obama appointees. And... Um, I'll just say my experience was very uh, unfavorable. Uh, I, I, again, I go to the, I went to the Mike Flynn trial every day. I went to every, every one of his court appearances. I went to Roger Stone's court appearances. You know, here you have a jurors, you know, tweeting out, you know, guillotine, guillotine in social media, you know, before the trial, during deliber deliberations. Right. I mean, that's just unheard of. Uh, mistrial immediately, right? Or at least a new jury. Um, so you, you, you see this in D.C. really clearly. And, um, but, you know, uh, Trump uh, put in Jesse Liu, who was supposed to be uh, someone who was going to change things. But the D.C. district really hasn't changed much. A lot of these people that get recommended, it's sort of the launching pad to the, secret, uh, to the Supreme Court. And there's a heavy influence um, on on the judges in the D.C. district. I think tr Trump has had a lot more success outside of D.C., but uh, because all of the government departments, if you want to sue any government department, you have to sue in D.C. because they're based in D.C., which is a heck of a, uh, a power base. So um, I, I say D.C. is, is everything, uh, and then everything else is 10%. You know, D.C. is 90% of the game if you want to drain the swamp. And then everything else is 10%. It's, I'm not saying Trump hasn't done a good job of you know, e you know, leveling the teeter-totter. But 
but in D.C. it's, it's not been leveled yet. General Flynn, and we see what's going on with this judge. You know, even Flynn, he doesn't want the, the court to rehear the case, saying that the judge, quote-unquote, hijacked, hijacked the prosecution. Is he out of the woods yet or, or not? Well, interestingly enough, I've been on the uh, in the elevator with Sidney Powell many times, uh, and uh, you know she's pretty mum about the case. But I, I do read all of her pleadings, and um, uh, and she did a great job. She came in and really you know kind of took it to the court, you know Emmett Sullivan and and, and everyone. But her uh, one of her pleadings was about these black bears. That he, she, Mike Flynn was given an encrypted communications device in order to talk to Sergey Kisilyak. Again, Blackberries that were not approved by the State Department. These are not the Motorola, um, Sectel, you know, type uh, state NSA State Department encrypted phones. You know, the standard issue. These are illegal because of the Public Records Act. You either have to use the NSA standard issue uh, secure telephone, or you have to, you know, just have a private a conversation without classified information on a regular phone. You can't have uh, a dark phone that's dark to the NSA, but that's what these Blackberries were. Well, it turns out, in order to entrap Mike Flynn, he also gets one of these Blackberries. And Joseph Missoud also gets one of these Blackberries. So now you have this pair of Blackberries that's in the pleadings of Sidney Powell. And you may remember Donald Barr going to London and then going to Rome and then, uh, you know, confiscating these Blackberries. He also was given a Blackberry that communicated with Sergei Kislyak. And I just happen to know who is the person that created this sort of detente Blackberry. If you think about it, if you're having a discussion like the Iran nuclear deal, you can't just include you know, Britain, France, and, um, you know, or, or let's say any nuclear negotiations for, uh, you know, trying to do a nuclear negotiation uh, for reducing uh, missiles. You have to include and be able to communicate to the Russians. They had to. So this is why, this is why I'm saying this Biden Blackberry was this diplomatic Blackberry that was being used by the State Department. And all of a sudden they took a right turn and said, well, we're not going to use the one that that NSA wants us to use. We're going to use these. So I think, again, the Mike Flynn case unfolds when you just, when you open up the network. Show me. Don't show me a lot of evidence and a lot of cables and a lot of emails. Show me just metadata. When did Mike Flynn start communicating with Joseph Mifsud? When did he start communicating with George Papadopoulos, Carter Page, uh, Sergei Kesselyak, because that metadata will tell you a completely different story than what you've been told in the press. For me, I want to see that information. Mike Flynn was involved in a very large nuclear deal and negotiating 30 nuclear power plants with the Russians as a partner. I'd like to see that. Mike Flynn was talking to a guy named Alex Copson, who was a part of a nuclear waste uh, project and he's texting him at the inauguration of Trump. I'd, so I'd like to see those texts. And this is where Trump really could help uh, by just publishing the metadata. We wouldn't be seeing any of the classified information. So no, no classified information would be at risk, but we would get a much better sense 
of when did Flynn start talking to the FBI. You know, we would get a much better sense of the lay of the land and we wouldn't have to make these statements, you know, without the backup that we know we have the metadata on our side to, to, to tell what really happened. So if and or when, and it seems like the latter is the one that's going to prevail, he is completely cleared uh, on his yeah. appeal. What do you think Trump's going to do? Do you think that he's going to be appointing him to a, a demonstrable, important position like, say, FBI director? I think there's a, lot, a big pressure for that right now in, uh, in D.C. Um, they really want Trump to uh, pardon Mike Flynn. Um, I, I don't know if that's a trap like the pardoning of Roger Stone. You know, he commuted Roger Stone's sentence. And the first thing that happened was Eric Swalwell, you know, called up one of uh, a Biden, a Imran Awan secret BlackBerry carrier, Eric Swalwell, immediately called Bill Barr up to the Hill and said, you know, you said you wouldn't trade. You said you wouldn't let someone trade uh, immunity or a pardon for not, uh, you know, ratting on the president, right? They immediately accused him of, you know, Trump was playing favors by commuting Roger Stone's sentence. I'm, I'm pretty close to the Roger Stone defense team, so I'm, I'm kind of on the inside of that one. But now there's a there's a, another lure or a dangle there with Mike Flynn because you Trump might not only commute Mike Flynn's sentence, but, but pardon him. And once he's pardoned, you, you know, Cap Weinberger got pardoned. You could hire him again. You know, he could become the national security advisor again. Trump could say, look, he was wrongfully uh, targeted by the FBI, and now I can make him national security advisor again. Or FBI director. I totally and completely support Mike Flynn becoming the FBI, uh, FBI director rather than um, Christopher Ray. I mean, Christopher Ray is just a cover-up artist, and he has been for Mueller since, you know, 20 years. You know, so uh, I, I'm fully in support of Mike Flynn coming back in the next Trump. But I think you have to go through the election cycle before you do that. Just my opinion. Can you hear me? I don't know if we got disconnected all of a sudden. I heard everything. So what I don't understand yeah. is, for example, Trump, he has pardoned, I believe, about not pardon, executive clemency, uh, commutations and and pardons. 25. Obama, what is the number? 1,927 total. Commutations, 1,715, 212 pardons. So why do we criticize so much? It's almost been four years, and this is how many he has pardoned. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, now, this is where I uh, will get a, <laughs> a lot of hate mail. But I, I, I'm, I come from the Democratic side, and I, I, I voted for Obama twice, and I know people are going to find that hard to believe. And I was a Bernie supporter, and I know people are going to find that hard to believe. And I came over because of Bernie getting screwed. You know, the money being swept out of the Bernie accounts by this same crew, Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Imran Awan, swept over to Hillary for America. You know, uh, so that's why I switched. Uh, but a lot of those pardons that you're talking about with Obama came for prisoners who were um, like Get had drug drug. Con Well, yeah, those those two, uh, but uh, drug convictions and so forth. And and Obama campaigned on closing Gitmo, so he, you know there was a lot of resistance on closing it. So he ended up uh, just doing the pardons for the people there to reduce the number as much as he could. So so there's a little bit more to that number. But I agree with you. Trump has taken 
5,000 times more flack for the various commutations that he's done. I mean, let's talk about Bill Clinton and Mark Rich. I mean, you got every crime that you can imagine with Mark Rich, you know, on a global scale of over decades, and he pardons Mark Rich. So it's really hard to, uh, you know, the hypocrisy meter pegs out pretty hard watching these Democrats talk about Trump commuting Roger Stone's sentence. And in, in an actual fact, uh, again, if you sit and listen to the evidence, uh, Roger Stone was approached originally, this is in the book, uh, by an, a th- to start this whole thing off. Dmitry Alperovich and CrowdStrike with the emails, Hillary's emails, which are all these Libya, Syria, Sudan emails. They originally try to offer those to Roger Stone from a 20-year FBI informant. Now, how in any way is that fair? That you take somebody who's a friend of the president, you say, hey, here's Hillary's emails. And, you know, the guy says, you know, I want $2 million. And, you know, Stone laughs and says, you know, Trump's not going to pay for any emails. But that started a chain of 20 or 30 different lures the FBI uh, lured and dangled Hillary's emails about 20 or 30 different times throughout the campaign and just showed how it was just nothing other than get Trump right from the beginning. Um, and, and that you have any fair minded person in the middle can see how jaded and one sided this thing is. Right? I mean, Trump has just taken so much flack for pretty. I mean, with Roger Stone, he could have pardoned Roger, Roger Stone very easily. Uh, he had the basis to do it. Um, right from the beginning, Roger Stone was entrapped. And again, I'm talking to the, I'm going down there, I'm talking to uh, Tyler Nixon on the defense team. I'm saying, hey, call this witness, call that witness, do it, you know, call Roger to the stand. You know, you're going to get him convicted if you don't do this. And Tyler is not listening. Um, other people are listening on the on the defense team. And he got convicted seven counts by not providing an aggressive defense. So. But in no way, it was a process crime, if at all, lying to Adam Schiff. I mean, that's kind of, <laughs> that's not really, uh, that's Adam Schiff's interpretation. Um, I thought Roger actually told the truth, but the defense didn't knock down the fundamental theory of who the actual back channel to WikiLeaks was. If they had knocked down who the actual back channel was, he would have been acquitted. So I think you know, to, to, to put drag Trump through the coals on Roger Stone is really the height of hypocrisy for the Eric Swalwells of the world who are carrying the Obama uh, secret Blackberry in their hip pocket. Was it necessary to descend upon him almost law enforcement wise as if he were <laughs> another Osama bin Laden? <laughs> Well, I, I, in my series, I go down to the restaurant where the emails were offered, and I go to these different uh, – these are gun runners. These are, are, are Ukrainian and Russian gun runners that have been used as intermediaries and firewalls to do these covert action deals for 20 years. So they get repurposed, sort of like Humphrey Bogart playing a good guy at the end of the year on December 31st. That's a MGM. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's about ready to run out. Everybody says, well, this Casablanca isn't going anywhere. <laughs> it turns out to be a classic, right? But these people literally are like stock character actors to do international arms deals for 20 years. And all of a sudden, they're being recast at the last minute as somehow whistleblowers. Lev Parnas, uh, these guys you know, are all involved in fraud schemes over a 20-year period. 
so they're being introduced now uh, in the in the uh, Adam Schiff's little uh, show and dance, song and dance with the Trump impeachment as somehow heroes. So right from the start, the first person, uh, you know, that is introduced is a person with weapons charges. Uh, he's inter- international uh, fraud, money laundering, etc. And that's the person, a, a killer, that's introduced, that, that offers the emails right off the bat to Roger Stone. And then they turn around and, and have an uh, Osama bin Laden type raid on the house. I mean, I've been to his house. <laughs> it's just so, his wife, you know, they got the little dog, I mean, the little tiny dog. Uh, you know, it's it, and it was such a nice family. They could have easily come to the door at nine o'clock and said, we would like to take you downtown and ask a few questions. But this is the Mueller signature. The Mueller, go right to the very first Lyndon LaRouche uh, raid that he did when he thought Lyndon LaRouche had some had some dirt on the, on the Cuba, the second Cuba invasion. It, it's always this way. If we attack with 50 guys, they'll think the party's guilty. And you know what? Those old tropes just don't seem to work anymore. Everybody knows that this is theater. And they just say, oh, here we go again, another Mueller raid, you know. Uh, so I think, the, I think the, the country is getting smarter about these things and just sees these things for the theatrics that they are. Where do Mueller and uh, – what's his name? The FBI director uh, – Chris Ray. Yeah. No, 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 no. They, they want that uh, very tall one. Jeez. Uh, oh, James Comey. Comey, Comey. Yeah. Where do they stand in all of this? Well, I mean, if you look at Comey, uh, again, I go back to my series four years ago. Comey let Mark Rich off the hook seven times. He did wrist slaps, either a combination of wrist slaps or looking the other way, seven times. He was your perfect um, Clinton you know, lap dog, obviously. Yeah, he, he's your perfect Keystone cop. Uh, and if you go back, I went back to his uh, Yonkers. I remember, you know, identifying that his his grandfather was a cop there in Yonkers and got the contract for all the cars in New York. You know, when you abandon a car in New York and you leave it for a certain amount of time, they they tow it over to the Chelsea Piers. But then, after a certain more period of time, they declare it, you know, state property. Well, the guy who got the property to uh, sell off the cars for scrap or whatever or use cars was James Comey's grandfather. And his father was also kind of involved in this in Yonkers, New York. And they used the cars as basically container cartridges for shipping weapons uh, for like things like Bay of Pigs. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that Comey's grandfather was involved in Bay of Pigs, but but later on there's a there's a pro, uh, operation called Operation Cassandra where those cars were used. There's no doubt about this. And the DNC operative named Alpha Jola was a part of that. This is reported by Politico and Josh Meyer. So, you know, like father, like son, like grandfather, like son. I don't know, but it looks like that was very important. You know, that CIA, FBI cooperation and looking the other way was very important in the dramatic rise of James Comey. He's the same age as I am. We're about the same height, 6'8". Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with his career. And it just seems like he was an appeaser of the CIA from, from really the earliest days. You mentioned biopics. Let me just get to JFK for a moment here. I'm... <laughs> It have always bothered me just because my family suffered and they had to escape Cuba after the missile crisis and the whole story that people know. But 
Did we let that operation fail on purpose to destroy JFK? Yeah, I do. I think if you go back and look at Fletcher Prouty's book on that, I have a best-selling book, not only on Blackberry's Matter, but I also have a best-selling book on the FBI guy who was Kennedy's man to smash the CIA into a thousand pieces named Let's Call Him McDuff. So I've got two books. But um, I didn't realize you're from Cuba, but um, the... Not me, my parents. Your parents. Uh, but the um, uh, what happened was you, you, you may all, everybody knows the story that Alan Dulles put out, which was, oh, Kennedy wasn't able to answer the phone and the planes were about, the, the B-25s or the B-26s were about ready to leave the air base and they needed to bomb the last three T-33s over in Santiago. And if we don't bomb these last three, everybody's going to be caught with their pants down at, uh, all the supply ships are going to be caught with their pants down at Bay of Pigs. You, everyone knows the story. But in actual fact... Uh, the national security advisor, which was Mc, uh, McGeorge Bundy, uh, not McGeorge Bundy. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to forget his name now. I think it was actually McGeorge Bundy. Now that I think about it, uh, uh, did not give the authorization for that last bombing campaign. And they left the T 33s in wingtip to wingtip in San Diego. And then they mopped up the B 26s, even though the T 33 was an old jet, right? Uh, against a bomber versus a jet, it's it's duck soup with no fighter cover, right? And that shot everybody out of the sky. And I definitely believe that that was in 61, April 61, was to uh, embarrass Kennedy, uh, the new kid on the block. Um, and they embarrassed Kennedy again with the Cuban Missile Crisis because Kennedy had then said, this is where my character comes in, this McDuff character, hey, we're going to take Cuba with a 261,000-man in invasion force. I'm talking task forces, 6th Fleet, 3rd Fleet, you know, et cetera. And they had to build a, a phantom in Kennedy's mind that if they do that, that, wait a minute, we discover Russian missiles, and that's going to trigger World War III. And now there's a deterrent that's built in Kennedy's mind. And I do not believe there was actually a, a functioning missiles in Cuba, there was a couple of anti-aircraft missiles that shot down one plane, but I don't believe the ICBMs, uh, the 12 and the 14, were operational. I think they, you know, they had their favorite U-2 pilot, uh, Oswald, take the picture, uh, but and he was, you know, conveniently a Russian-speaking pilot that could take the picture to show him to Kennedy. But I believe the photos that Adlai Stevenson showed, at, you know, and said, "I'm going to wait here until hell freezes over." That whole thing. Uh, were actually uh, quickly built, very quickly assembled, and were not fully operational uh, when they showed them to Kennedy. But Kennedy gives the promise, I'm never going to invade Cuba again uh, if you take the missiles, and, and they take the missiles, and, they, uh, and then the rest is history. Cuba stays communist for 50 years. And I think they, you know, I think CIA always wanted that. It's like a gun to the head of every president after that. You can always pull the Cuba revolver out of your pocket, put it to the gun, to the head of the president, and say, in 90 seconds, Washington could go up in, in flames. If we don't like what we're doing, we can always pull the Cuba revolver out of our pocket, put it in your forehead in 90 seconds. And it's really played that role ever since. Um, and, you know, politics in Miami, we can talk about that. You know, Cuban exiles has also always been a political football in Florida. Of course. Yeah. Well, let's... Let's come back. 
with this and some other stuff that I want to discuss with you. Sure. And things that I didn't want to put in segment one because this is what really gets our our channel shuts down and you're very experienced when it comes to that. But how can people yeah. buy the two books and all your books? Uh, I know that your YouTube channel is down. You don't have a website now. But tell us how can people buy the books and anything else? Well, I, I price the books to get the story out. The, the books are... are two dollars you know uh, the reason why they're two dollars is amazon won't let me sell them for 99 cents because there's so much stuff in the books uh, the actual data you know package delivery rate is two dollars the minimum i could do it's not because they're not great books it's because I, i pack as much in there as i can but i want people to buy them and i want them to buy them for their kids in the case of the, the kennedy book because i think it's a great role model fbi g-man role model uh, but in the case of blackberries matter i want to stop the coup Uh, I want to expose the network, you know, if I, any kind of, you know, you try to stop 9-11, if you had all the communications devices of all 20 hijackers a week before the thing, that's how you stop the 9-11, right? Depending on, you know, I don't want to get into the 9-11 thing, but th I'm saying exposing the networks the way you stop it. So that's why it's priced $2 for Blackberries Matter. Blackberries Matter because they're the one thing doing the coup, not because they did Libya, Syria, Sudan. It's the same people doing the coup. And the more you get into it and read the evidence in the book, you'll you'll see how true that is. It's two dollars on Kindle. The paperback is as low as it can be as well, four dollars. Again, just chock full of graphs, information, pictures, everything I can to make the case. Let's turn that stone when we come back because I want to know what kind of communication mechanism they had in order to plan that. Obviously, it. Anybody who listens to this show knows that a. Person from Saudi Arabia inside of a cave in Afghanistan or Pakistan did not did not master all of this. But we'll discuss this when we come back. I'm El Hostelbreak. My special guest today is George Webb. Much more when we return. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know. <laughs>